will be from John chapter, you can stand as you look for that, John chapter 20, and I'll be reading beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter therefore also came following him and entered the tomb and beheld the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings, wrappings but rolled up in a place by itself. Then entered in therefore the other disciple also who had first come to the tomb and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. The disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she beheld two angels in white, sitting one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Lord, we um, just to stand in awe, humbled God, God by what you have done for us in Christ, that you gave your Son for us, that we might have our sin forgiven and might live in union with you and have the life, God, that we've been created for. Thank you for loving us so unconditionally. Thank you, God, for the sacrifice that you gave on our behalf. We thank you most of all that Jesus lives and that he lives within all who have placed their faith in him for salvation. We ask God that you would minister to us, strengthen our hearts and our faith as we look at your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me see you. Well, I have to tell you, um, there are a few times during the year where I feel um, more in awe of the, of the privilege and responsibility of sharing than on Easter Sunday. Okay, this is a great day and a great time of giving um, remembrance to the fact that Jesus Christ came, he died, he was buried, and rose again from the dead. And he lives. 
Fifty years ago, um, on Easter Sunday, the Lord worked in my heart to understand truly for the first time in a heartfelt way that Christ gave himself for me because he loved me, and I yielded my heart to him, wanting to know him and his love. And since that time, I have um, come to discover more fully what it means to be in a relationship with the Lord, and we, I'm sure, will be discovering for all of eternity all that that means. Um, I just told the students this week a story, and many of you have heard it said before, but I keep coming back to it throughout my life, and especially on Easter. When I was in Bible college and finishing up college, and I had to have a senior doctrinal review, and um, it was supposed to be really hard-hitting, heavy theological stuff, but they surprised me, and they started out with just one simple question, and that was, um, give the gospel to a dying man, and role play, do it right now as though the dying man were in the room, and you were sharing Christ with him. And I panicked, and I thought, this is just too simple. I'd studied for great profound things, and now they just want me to give the gospel. And so it got pretty intense because the two professors there that were grilling me were, were all but yelling at me because I was hesitating, and the man that I was supposed to be witnessing to was dying. So they said, get with it. Give the man the gospel. And so I told the man, you're a sinner. Jesus died for your sins. You need to place your faith in Christ. And they said, is that all you have to say? And I'm thinking, I'm never going to graduate from this school. <laughs> They're about to flunk me because I can't pass the most simple question of all, and that is what the gospel is. And I repeated it, you're a sinner. Jesus died for your sins. You have to place your faith in Christ. And the professor repeated what I said, even counting it out on his fingers. And then he said, I've left something out, and so have you. What did you leave out? And I said, you're a sinner. <laughs> Jesus died for your sins. You've got to place your faith in him. And I said, I don't know. And that professor yelled at me in that little bitty office. The resurrection! You left out the resurrection! <laughs> and he goes, there is no gospel without the resurrection. And I go, I'm sorry. And he goes, you should be sorry. <laughs> and I said, I'll never forget. And he goes, you better never forget. And I have been true to my word. I have never forgotten. <laughs> if Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead, Paul says, we are of all men most to be pitied. Why would he say that? Because as Christians, we understand that this is not all there is. There is an eternity beyond this brief time on this earth. And we live for something other than ourselves. We live for the one who gave himself for us. As Paul said, our lives are constrained by the love of Christ. But if he doesn't live, and there is no resurrection, and there is no eternity, then this is the best we're ever going to have. So you might as well live for all you can get. And if we aren't doing that, living for all we can get, and there is no future, no eternity, no resurrection, then we are of all men most to be pitied because we have squandered and wasted the one chance to get all we can get. 
But there is a resurrection. And we are not to be pitied. Christ, having risen from the dead, we are not still in our sins. We have been forgiven and we have been set free. These women here in John 20 that we've just read about were in such despair. And then they went from despair to incredible, unspeakable joy and hope. He's alive. And Mary again saying, I have seen the Lord. And that would never be taken from her. We could, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you have entered into a living relationship with a living person. You know, if my marriage certificate were to be lost, nobody could convince me that I was not married to Patsy. If the Bible, every Bible in the world were destroyed, no one could convince me that my faith in Jesus Christ wasn't real, that Jesus had not risen from the dead. I know he has. I know I've been forgiven. I know he loves me. And I know that he lives, and I'm in personal relationship with him. Can't fully explain it, but I know it. I want to spend some time this morning in one of the most basic of all passages, and that is in John chapter 3, and especially John 3.16. Probably the first verse that many of us memorized as children, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And you maybe recall that that statement of John 3.16 was made in the context of Jesus having a nighttime secret meeting with a Pharisee, Nicodemus, who had the entire Old Testament memorized, could have answered basically any question that anyone asked, but he did not know how to have eternal life. And he came to Jesus in the dark of night with questions that he couldn't answer and knew something different was about Jesus. And this man knew what he needed to know. So it says in chapter 3, verse 2, that this man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus just drives straight to the point of knowing what this man needs, that all of his theological training hasn't given him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus would have been an expert on all things concerning the kingdom of God. But he knew nothing about being born again. And he had no idea what Jesus was talking about. So Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So he's trying to bring him to an activity of God that only God can accomplish. And this is what new birth is. It is the activity of God. God saves us. He says, Nicodemus, you've been living your whole life 
from your own humanity, from your own natural abilities. You're a smart guy, you've memorized the scripture, you've studied hard, but it's been all you and you have no understanding of spiritual things because they can only be communicated by the Spirit of God. Verse 8, the wind blows. Well, verse 7, do not marvel that I say you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Again, no understanding of spiritual things. Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? And so now he's working to humble this man. Could have said, you know, I get a lot of people don't get this, Nicodemus, that's okay. But he says, you're a teacher of Israel? How can you be so stupid? How can you be so ignorant? You've got a PhD in theology and you don't know what I'm talking about? I believe because Jesus is driving the, home, the point home, you of all people should know what I'm talking about that what Jesus was talking about was not a new revelation, but it is something that God had talked about in the Old Testament. And in particular, I've come to believe that Jesus was making reference to Ezekiel 36, which we now would call the New Covenant. And in that, Jesus, in the, the Word of God says that you have to be washed from your sin, and the Spirit of God has to come and dwell in you. You have to be washed, you have to be given a new heart, a new spirit, and the Spirit of God will indwell you and cause you to obey Him. Four things that have to take place. The first is the washing, and the last is the Spirit. And so when Jesus says a man has to be born of water and the Spirit, I think He's not talking about water being the, the natural birth, but I think He's talking about water being the washing from our sin that's mentioned in Ezekiel 36 coupled with the indwelling of the Spirit because we need both things to happen. And Nicodemus doesn't understand. He understands what his Bible says, but he does not understand with his heart. Maybe it's more accurate to say he didn't understand with his spirit. A man has to have life. And it's a life that we are not born with. If you do not, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? There is something here, Nicodemus, that goes beyond what you can apprehend with your natural abilities. And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, speaking of his crucifixion. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. Now let's just think about this for a minute. Man's need is so enormous. There is absolutely no answer for our condition apart from what God could do. It is a God-sized need. 
As a 10-year-old boy, I knew my need was God-sized. I knew I needed to be loved. I knew I needed to be forgiven. I knew I needed a relationship with God. And there is no way that I could meet the needs of my life by anything I could do. I knew well enough at 10 years old that my parents could not meet my needs. And that was no reflection on them. It's just it was my need was bigger than what they could meet. I knew that my church wasn't going to meet my needs. I certainly knew school wasn't going to meet my needs. And I was a desperate, despairing little boy. Until the Lord spoke beyond my heart. We call it our heart, but really we're talking about the spirit. That God communicated to my spirit. He had met my need in Jesus Christ. And for the first time in my young life that I recall, I actually talked to Jesus. And really talked to him. Wasn't just saying a prayer over a meal, kind of gets rote. But I said, Jesus, I want you to love me. And for the first time in my life, in my spirit, I heard Jesus say, I have loved you, and I will love you. I didn't know Romans 5.8 at that time, which says that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that he gave his son to die for us. And it doesn't say he demonstrated, but he demonstrates. It is the ongoing, continuous, present tense display of God's love. Every time we celebrate Good Friday and Easter, we're not just thinking of a past thing, but it's a continuous display of God's love. He loves us. And he gave his son to die for us. And he is constantly witnessing to that. For God, only God, can meet the need that each of us has. And once we place our faith in God, we don't just now just wait until we go to heaven. Because as God alone can supply our need, only God can meet the daily need that we have for him. For God so loved, and the so is clearly emphatic. We were his enemies, his blasphemers. We've scorned him, we've rejected him, we've, we've laughed at the idea of surrender to him and knowing him. And yet he so loved that he gave his son. For God so loved the world. Next, he's going to say that whosoever. So is world only some or is world all? I don't know. I, I even just in the last couple of days opened up the concordance again and looked at all the references to world. I didn't count how many there are. But it is. I just, it is beyond credibility to me, how a person can look at how John uses the word world in the Gospel of John, the Revelation, the book, the Re book of Revelation, the epistles of John, and not have to say John meant every single person in this world. 
Jesus died for the world, all the world. That whosoever, there are 183 uses of whosoever in the Bible. The Webster Dictionary says whosoever means whoever. It means anybody and everybody. And all of those 183 uses of whosoever mean anybody, anywhere, anytime. You can walk up to anybody on the street, any place, and say, God so loved you that he gave his son for you. And it is absolutely true. Some would argue and say, well, if God gave his son for all and all are not saved, then somehow God's sovereignty and God's will are thwarted. But nobody has difficulty with knowing that God gave ten commandments. Commandments, not an offer, but a command. And we routinely disobey the commandments of God. And nobody says that they aren't commandments, even though we disobey them. So why is the offer not an offer to all, even though all don't receive the offer? God's sovereignty is not canceled out because we refuse the offer made to us. He's made an offer to all, the whole world, that whosoever should believe could receive eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Only begotten, we don't use words like that anymore, but it just only means that he is uniquely the son of God. When you place your faith in Christ, you become a child of God. But we are not sons and daughters of God as Jesus is the son of God. He was never created the Son of God. He did not become the Son of God. He was not born the Son of God. He is uniquely the Son of God. When God said to Abraham, offer up your son, Isaac, he said, your only son. And Isaac wasn't his only son. There was also Ishmael. But Ishmael was a son in a different way than Isaac was. Isaac was uniquely the son of Abraham. And Jesus is uniquely the son of God. And God gave him. And I'm again convinced that it takes the Spirit of God to speak to our spirit to fully understand the significance of what he did when he gave his son for us. Kevin talked about being a new dad. And there's nothing like it and you hold that baby for the first time and you begin to think, and God gave his son for me? I would not give up this child for anyone. I would die for this child. But to give the child to those who wouldn't even appreciate the gift? But God has. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, anybody, believes in him, just believes in him, 
not just believes that he came, but trusting in him, receiving him. These are all the words that John uses in his gospel. Trust, receive. Whoever says, Jesus, I need you. I have a God-sized need, and you're the one that God has given to meet my need. I place my faith in you, Lord Jesus, to do what I cannot do for myself. And God says, that person shall not perish. But they will have eternal life. I want you to listen to these verses. In John 11, Jesus was talking with Mary, and, and Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. Sorry, Martha. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. The first half of that is amazing enough on its own. But people die believing all kinds of things that aren't true. So it's not necessarily all that amazing to believe that we shall live after we die. But the next part, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's a little harder. But absolutely true. We have a good friend um, who's in the process of, of transitioning to be with the Lord. The doctors say she only has a few more weeks left. Not an easy time. We've all been seen those, gone, known people who've gone ahead of us, who've been through this, who have died. But I'm telling you, as, as hard as it is, I, I do not like being with people who are about to be with the Lord. It's very uncomfortable. You don't know what to say, all that. But I can also say some of the most significant times of encouragement I've had in my relationship with the Lord has been with people who are making that transition. To see their hope, to see their confidence, to see their peace, to see their joy. In the midst of death, they are living. He, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never and you see a body that is perishing, but you see a person who is living to the very end. In the last breath they take, they are not despairing. They are, they are, they are, they are not regretful. They are not remorseful. They are looking forward to what's next. Even though they are dying, they are living in John chapter 20, verse 31, John wrote and said, These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In 1 John 5, 11, And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Think about what all those verses have in common. He who believes in him 
is given eternal life. He's not just given grace to make it through life, but he is given life. He is given Jesus, who is himself life. Now, I'm not by any means eloquent, and so I like to read other people who are. And Ian Thomas was a man uniquely gifted by God, I, I believe more than any other that I've ever heard of, to speak clearly and powerfully on the significance of placing your faith in Christ and receiving eternal life. So I want to read just a few statements here from his book, The Indwelling Life of Christ. When you and I have received Christ as our Redeemer, he gave, when you and I received Christ as our Redeemer, He gave us, through His Holy Spirit, the fullness and power of His resurrection. He has given us everything we could ever need at any time under any circumstance. The Lord Jesus came from heaven to earth, not just to get us out of hell and into heaven, but to get himself out of heaven and into us. He gave himself for us to give himself to us the gift of his life so that we may enjoy a wonderful personal relationship with him that never changes because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ and eternal life are synonymous terms. Eternal life is none other than Jesus Christ himself, of whom it is written, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Eternal life is neither an inward feeling nor an ultimate destination after you are dead. If you are born again, eternal life is that quality of life that you possess right now at the very moment in dwelling your physical body with your own two feet on the ground and in this world today. He is that life. My salvation is that Christ, having died for me to change my destination when I died, also rose again from the dead to live his life in me and to change my character. His indwelling life in me overcomes the old Adamic nature, the carnal mind that is at enmity with God and which can only abuse, misuse, and prostitute my humanity. Salvation is so much more than a change of destination from hell to heaven. The true spiritual content of our gospel is not just heaven one day, but Christ here and now. In the economy of God, conversion is only an essential preliminary to discipleship, which is a lifetime of allowing Christ to live in you and do his work through you. Your salvation is also a million times more than simply knowing your sins are forgiven. As a forgiven sinner, you are to be re-inhabited by your maker, reinvaded by deity, so that your, your humanity becomes intelligently available to an intelligent God for the intelligent purpose for which he intelligently created you. He rose again from the dead to take the place of what you are, which he does by his Holy Spirit indwelling you. This is the gospel, the whole of it. Anything less than this falls short of the gospel as revealed in the word of God. The Lord Jesus came into this world to redeem us and to restore us to our true humanity and function, to restore us to the life that we lost in Adam so that we can in him and, and he, so that he can be, we can be in him and he can be in us. Therefore, the measure in which his redemptive purpose has been accomplished in us is the measure in which we are at, we are as, 
what we are is what he is, and what we do is what he does, and what we say is what he says, because he lives in us. What the Father was to Jesus in his humanity during his life on earth, so Jesus is to our humanity now. Just as Jesus' humanity was fully a manifestation of the Father's deity, so our humanity now is to be a full expression of the Son's deity. It is a relationship with Jesus that allows him to live his life through us so that we do his work his way when and where he may demand it. When we as human beings make ourselves available to Jesus Christ in the same way that Jesus as man made himself available to the Father, then Jesus will be in us, in our humanity, what the Father was to him in his humanity. That is the whole Christian life in a nutshell. And amen to that. And he goes on to say, if we are not prepared, no matter how weak and foolish it may appear to be, to do as we are told, then whatever you may believe about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is still academic. You have not entered into the good of it. When you place your faith in Christ, you are given life, His life. And the one who is life has come to indwell you. It's an incredible thought. Whosoever. Jesus used the illustration of the bronze serpent when he said that. When those people of Israel were, being, were murmuring and complaining and God sent the snakes into the camp, many of those people were bitten and many of them died. But nobody had to. The scripture says that he had Moses make a, a bronze serpent and put it up on a standard that anybody in the entire camp of Israel could just look at the serpent and they wouldn't die. And yet still, thousands of people refused to look at that serpent. The offer was for all. Jesus' death on our behalf is a fulfillment of the Passover, which was initiated, inaugurated back in the days of Egypt. And God said very clearly to Israel and to Egypt, a death angel is going to pass over every single household with no exceptions. And every household is going to have a child die. The firstborn will die in every single household with no exceptions. But I've made provision for all. And all you have to do is take the blood of a lamb and paint it across your door, across the top and down the sides. And the death angel will see that blood and pass over. And the firstborn will not die. It was a salvation offer made to all. But not all received the offer. Just as, just as not all looked at the bronze serpent. But as many as did paint the, do, the blood across their door, the death angel passed over. And they were spared. When Noah made that ark... God had him make it plenty big for lots of people other than those animals. You really should go see the reconstruction of it up in Ohio, or Kentucky, I guess it is. Lots of people could have fit in that boat. Only eight went in. It was not shut off to all, but only eight entered in. Our salvation is the gift of God that has been extended to all. The only question is, will we receive? And having received by faith, we receive the person of Jesus Christ. 
And as Major Thomas has said, that person is not given just so that we can go to heaven. Have our sins forgiven, go to heaven, and the rest of the time just do the best we can. But Christ himself has not only risen, he's ascended, and he now indwells us in the person of his Holy Spirit. And now we no longer have to live this difficult life by our own strength. As Nicodemus was living his life, trying to work it out, figure it out, be the best you can, apply yourself. We were not saved by working it out, figuring it out, and applying ourselves. We were saved by receiving the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. And God has always intended that the way that we are saved is the way that we would live. It is the difference between a spiritual man and a natural man. I hate living as a natural man. And everybody around me hates it when I live as a natural man. There is the difference between a spiritual man is a natural man is the difference between life and death. And we have been saved to have life. And that life is known spiritually. From the Spirit of God communicating to the Spirit of man. We can still live life by our own intellect, our own natural abilities, the giftedness that we were born with, but it is a man or a woman living a natural life. God's intention is that he, that we live from his mind, his will, his emotions. Ours are not canceled out, but we're no longer just living simply from our own humanity. We're living a life in relationship with Him that it's His mind, His thoughts, His emotions that are controlling us and dictating, influencing us, where He is truly living in us and through us. It's not unlike a marriage where you choose to yield to the other person and we yield to Him and we know His life. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who lives. But the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. We could still live according to the flesh, but the life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God. Not that he will get us to heaven, but we live this life by faith in the one who lives. Christ in you, Colossians 1.27, the hope of glory. Romans 5.10, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his He lives to grant us his life and to live his life in us. I'll just close with Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 15. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, because Christ is alive, because the sting of death has been taken away, because our faith is not in vain, because Christ lives, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Jesus lives. We are not preaching what Christ did. We are preaching Christ raised from the dead. Because I love to hear it, let's say it again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, you are truly risen. Our hearts, God, in this fallen world, where we long to be with you, God, we still many times despair of life. It is far greater, Lord, to be with you. But you obviously regard it necessary at this time for all of us to still be here because we're still here. Lord, I pray that our hearts will just be encouraged and lifted in this sure knowledge that Jesus lives. And we haven't just been given grace to somehow muddle through, but we've been given life itself. And that though the body is dying and so much around us, Lord, is fallen, and is also just a, a reminder of death and all of its consequences. Lord, we know that Jesus lives. And I thank you, God, that your word is true, that those who have placed their faith in him will never die. That even in the dying process physically that we go through, we live. And the sweet aroma of Christ is manifest through us. Thank you, God for all that you are to us. Our need for you will never, ever be less than total and desperate. But you have met that need in Jesus. And in him, God, as your word says, the all in all is now come to us to be in us and to make us complete, that we will have in him everything we will ever need. Thank you, God for the finished work of Christ. And we thank you that he lives to live in us the hope of glory. In Jesus' name.